want to continue our time in worship by listening to the Word of God. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that classic text on the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to be reading the first 11 verses. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to, much, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still asleep, uh, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, we approach your holy word We recognize our sin. We come to you on this Resurrection Sunday celebrating the death and life of Christ for sinners. We recognize our need for salvation. We pray that you would open this text up to us in our understanding that we would worship you, that we would understand what you have to say to us, that you would change us, that you would mold us more into the image of your Son, that we would embrace the gospel if we've not yet done so, and that we would live differently as a result. And we pray that you would receive all the glory by the power of your spirit and through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we want to talk about resurrection reasoning, resurrection reasoning, reasoning from the resurrection and from the the cross all the way to the conquest of the universe from cross to conquest Now, our culture defines religion as a philosophy of life that's embraced for personal moral improvement, right? It's in the same category of preference as things like art, music, movies, favorite ice cream flavors, preferred therapeutic techniques. Those are the sorts of things that our culture categorizes religion along with. But Christianity poses two problems to that common approach. The first is that Christianity here in this text puts itself in the category not of abstract philosophy, but of historic fact. And second, it doesn't improve your life. Oh, sure, there's certain emotional payoffs here and now, and it's a great comfort to know God and have peace with God, but studies show that, in all honesty, following Christ makes your life measurably harder. And people look at you funny. In many parts of the world, it could cost you your life. Sin stops being as fun as it was before. So even though culture defines religion as good advice, the gospel means good news. Francis Schaeffer, the theologian, said that Christianity must be true before it can be helpful. See, we think of religion as that which is helpful, and this may be helpful to you, that may be helpful to another person. But if it's not true, forget the question of whether or not it's helpful. It has to be true, and then it can be helpful. 
That's why we began with Mark chapters 15 and 16 this morning. Mark, unlike the other gospel writers, doesn't unpack the implications of the resurrection for us. He leaves us there at the open tomb with the women running away in fear and terror and reverential awe. He leaves us to deal with the consequences of the resurrection. He leaves us to draw our own conclusions from it. And so that's what we want to do is we want to talk about the news and why it matters. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here for us in his 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And so our point this morning is that the resurrection is so core to the gospel that it compels us to reason from the cross to the whole cosmos and order our lives in light of the living Christ. The resurrection is so core to the gospel that it compels us to reason from the cross to the whole cosmos and to order our lives in light of the living Christ. And we'll unpack what that means, but... Let's begin just by looking at these first few verses here. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, And then he says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he steps back as author, and he steps forward and takes the role of, of just a messenger. He's just passing along the exact message that he received. Right? There's no, there's no creative influence. There's no... Uh, artistic freedom that he's exercising here. He's proclaiming a message that he received. He reminds them he preached it. They received it, this gospel. They stand in it and they are being saved by it to the degree that they hold on to it, that they're not guilty of believing in vain, that they're not guilty of empty belief. He says this not because they can lose their salvation. If someone has truly grasped the gospel of grace they can no more let go of it than it can let go of them. But he does say this because saving faith, true faith that God puts into a new heart, never lets go of the gospel. So he reminds them that this gospel is saving them. It's, it has saved them. It will yet save them. They are saved so long as they are indeed truly believing it. And we have to come to this text and realize this speaks to us today, too. We can be guilty of this same kind of empty faith. See, we have a dangerous tendency to treat the gospel like a vaccine, like a one-time flu shot. You say yes to Jesus just at this one point in your life. You prayed a sinner's prayer, perhaps on your bedside when you were eight, and you had seen a film that made you scared of hell or something to that effect. And once you receive that, that sinner's prayer, that vaccination, you're inoculated against death and hell and all the bad stuff. And now that you've done that, now the rest of your relationship with God is just a matter of you and your own spiritual diet and exercise. Of course, every 10 years or so, you might need to get a booster shot. That's your rededication, right? Get a rededication booster shot. But that is not how Scripture sets forth the gospel for us. Salvation in terms of justification by faith, the moment that God in his courtroom says, you are right in my eyes, you're righteous, he declares you righteous, he saves you and justifies you, that happens in a moment. So it is true that there is a moment in time that is decisive, but that's where the similarities with a vaccine end. Because Christianity never leaves the gospel for something else. This is important. I understand that most of us in this room would profess to be believers. Christianity never leaves the gospel to go on to something else. It, it builds on the foundation of the gospel. 
right? So there's more to Christianity than the gospel, but it never leaves that foundation. You don't graduate from gospel 101 and then move on to the advanced classes, the really important stuff like observing Lent or observing Jewish feasts or Passovers. If you're growing in your faith in a direction that's away from the gospel, the finished work of Christ is death, burial, and resurrection. So if you're growing spiritually, you think, but you're growing towards legalism or towards political advocacy as an end in itself or towards behavior modification techniques, then you're not rightly rooted. You cannot outgrow the gospel. A true Christian never outgrows the gospel, that, that Christ died for our sins and rose according to the scriptures. You know, on Easter Sunday, we all know, we've all complained of it, we've all experienced it, right? The, the stereotypical family that fills the minivan and they bicker and they fight all the way up to the front doors of the church and then as soon as they emerge from the van, then they're all smiles and rosy and wonderful, right? We, we, we've all thought of that or experienced that and just felt like this is, this is just the height of hypocrisy, right? This is, this is what we want to avoid at all costs. It just proves that we're in need of the gospel is all. If we're sinners, if we're beggars at the table of grace, then of course we're sinners on the way to the, 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 the gathering of God's people where we're going to hear the gospel, right? That's the whole point, is that we come as sinners in need of the gospel. So if that was you in your minivan this morning, congratulations. We're all in the same place. We're here because we need the grace of God. And so the first thing that we'll see about the gospel this morning is that the gospel is news. It's not advice. The gospel is news. And this news of Christ's death and resurrection for sinners is the bedrock of our faith. A guy named Dean and Sarah just wrote a book called The Unsaved Christian about the problem of cultural Christianity. And he points out a few things that... We might all know cognitively, but not all of us really viscerally understand this yet. He says the gospel is not church attendance. It's not be nice and sincere and be a good person. The gospel is not theism. The gospel is not your heritage culturally. The gospel is not your ethnicity. The gospel is not making Jesus your co-pilot or your lucky charm. By the way, if Jesus is your co-pilot, switch seats. But the gospel is news. It's an announcement. And we, on, on Resurrection Day, on Easter today, we, uh, we tend to skip to the end of the story, but you wouldn't do that in any other story, right? You wouldn't pick up a novel and turn three-quarters of the way through and expect to understand what's going on. You wouldn't walk into a movie theater 90 minutes in and expect to be keeping up with the plot. And so Paul outlines the whole gospel for us, beginning, middle, and end. And let's look at these three parts here of his proclamation. First, Christ died for our sins, verse 3. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So Christ died. That implies that we have a problem, doesn't it? Everyone will agree these days that nobody is perfect and the world has a problem, right? You, You can't turn on the news and see that the world doesn't have a problem. The world clearly has a problem. But Christianity comes forward and says we are the problem. We are the problem in the world. We're all born in a state of sin and rebellion ever since Adam, our ancestor, our federal head, our forefather, led us all into rebellion. We're born with that same sinful propensity. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is of pure eyes to even look on sin. Psalm 5 says that he hates sinners. Psalm 76 Verse 7 says, who can stand before you when once your anger 
is aroused. So God is good and perfect and just. And like any good judge, he must exterminate evil and give sin what it deserves. God will bring the hammer at one point, and we are the problem in the world. The reason we all die physically is not because of the circle of life, contrary to what Elton John would have us to believe, but physical death is our summons to the courtroom of God. It's our summons. It's us being called before the divine bench. It's a foretaste of the second death of eternal judgment, but it's God calling us to account. That's why Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. That's what death is. And we're sentenced to the wrath of God. Christ died for our sins. Jesus took this penalty. He took this curse upon us. His death was penal. It was punishment. He stood in our place. It was substitutionary. And it's what covers our sin. It's an atonement. We did the crime and he did the time. He satisfied the demands of God's justice so that God could freely, graciously, lovingly, mercifully forgive us in a way that accords with his righteousness because he can't violate his own just character. And Paul adds here and then again in the next verse that Christ did this in accordance with the scriptures. So this is prophesied throughout the Old Testament from 1500 to 700 years before Christ even stepped on this earth. For hundreds of years, God was predicting this in scripture. So this wasn't God's plan B. Jesus Dying on the cross was not God making lemonade out of humanity's lemons. God isn't just working with the hand that he's been dealt by us, the, the card dealer, and all of our human free choices. He's not just working with what, what he's been dealt. The lamb, according to Revelation 13:8, the lamb, Jesus Christ, was slain from before the foundation of the world in the mind of God. So from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had covenanted together. They had declared, they had decreed that they were going to redeem a people from sin through the death of the Son and do that all for their praise and honor and worship as the triune God. That was his plan A. It wasn't his plan B. But not only did Christ die for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, he was also buried. This is significant for a few reasons, and I think we skip over this because it sounds repetitive. Well, of course, if he died, he was buried, right? But... He really died, right? The mortician filed his report. They had, a, they had a time of death, cause of death, crucifixion. Jesus didn't swoon from the cross. He didn't just faint and then get up and walk away. That would have been no miracle. They would have rushed him to the nearest emergency room, right? And not only was he buried, he was buried with the rich in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, as we read earlier in Mark 15, which had been predicted in Isaiah 53. 700 years prior that this one would, would die the death of a criminal and yet be buried with someone who's rich and noble, which doesn't usually happen to criminals sentenced to death. And then he rested on Saturday, the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. Even in his death, he was fulfilling God's law for us. How amazing is that? And while he was buried, while he was in the grave, he, he descended into the depths of death. He descended into the grave. He robbed it of God's people that had been imprisoned there, plundering Sheol and death and hell, leading forward a triumphant jailbreak into the personal presence of God in heaven. And third, Christ was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Had to happen on the third day. Hosea 6 predicts that, verses 1 and 2. Death could not hold him. It would be impossible for death to hold on to him. Acts 
chapter 2, verse 24 tells us. And it's interesting, of course, that Paul writes this. Many people will say, well, this is a myth. This could be falsified. This is just words written on a page in ink. Paul penned these words 25 years after the events, no more than 25 years after the events. That's not enough time for a mythology to grow up around this man, Jesus of Nazareth. All of these witnesses that he lists, he says he appeared to Cephas and then the 12 and then more than 500 people and then James and then me, last of all. So he puts himself in last place, but there's over 500 other people that he's declared himself alive to. In 25 years, you can't have a myth around a man that everyone else would remember when he died. All they would have to do is produce the body. This shows us that it really happened. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is news. But we want to press in on the resurrection here this morning and remember that a gospel without the resurrection of Christ is futile. A gospel without the resurrection of Christ is futile. See, the Corinthians were a lot like us. And part of my job, so I, I work for a missions agency. We partner with churches, and I spend some time uh, looking a- around on churches' websites and finding their statement of faith and, and just making sure that they fit with us and that people will be compatible as churches send missionaries through our organization. But I often joke, and I've heard others say as well, that a church's statement of faith is sometimes the most useless document that they have on their website. For a few reasons. Some of them can fit on the back of a napkin. But other than that, It's easy to sign the dotted line on a statement of faith. It's another thing entirely to connect the dots. And the Corinthian church had the same issue. They had signed on the dotted line of the gospel, but they hadn't connected things yet in their head. Paul wants them to know that the resurrection can't be detached from the gospel. It's not an appendix that can be removed without long-term consequences. It's not the post-credit scene that comes at the end of a Marvel movie containing the, the final Easter egg for the next movie. Pun intended. Easter egg. A gospel without the resurrection cannot save. A gospel with an optional resurrection cannot save. And this is hard for us to understand, I think, in, in the West as Christians, as those who, who we, we understand the idea that Christ died in our place. That makes sense, right? We understand law and order. Didn't Jesus say on the cross when he died in John 19, it is finished, right? So, well, did he have to raise? Is that essential? It's great that he raised, but wasn't it done on the cross? Yet Paul explains, if Christ is not raised, his preaching and their faith are both in vain. Verse 14, they're lying about God, he and the apostles. Verse 15, they're still in their sins. Verse 17, deceased believers are doomed. Verse 18, and we above anyone else on the planet are most to be pitied. Verse 19, and so let's focus on three reasons the resurrection had to happen verse 17 and if christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins people who deny the resurrection and there's many out there they still want to have jesus generally as a moral example right as a positive example of sacrificial love the problem with that is okay imagine a lifeguard And he's up in his perch and he's watching the beach and he sees an innocent beachgoer get ripped out by a riptide and he's drowning and he's flailing and he's trying to tread water and he's going under and he's bubbling. Well, what would you think of this lifeguard if he strapped off his whatever, I don't know, (laughs) but if he got down, he ran into the water, he dived in and drowned alongside the man 
out of solidarity. What good does that do? Is that lifeguard a positive example of sacrificial love? No. What does he need to do? He needs to emerge from the water. He needs to come up on shore with the victim in his hands, right? Over his shoulders. In the same way, Jesus is no example. If, if Jesus dies on the cross just as a symbolic act of love and doesn't rise from the dead, then the fact that he said, follow me, is foolish. Don't follow Jesus. He died. Big deal, right? He's not a positive example unless he emerges from death with us in hand, victorious. And that's exactly what he did. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was raised for our justification. So he died for our sins, but he raised for our justification. So when you purchase something in a store, you receive a receipt. The resurrection is the proof of purchase that Christ died for our sins. Without it, the transaction, though complete and finished, would be invalid. This is why we don't glorify the crucifix symbol. I'm not talking about the cross. I'm talking about the crucifix that still shows the body of Jesus hanging there. It's not wrong, but I remember a conversation with a Muslim woman one time uh, in Virginia at the mall. Uh, she was a jewelry dealer. I, I, I believe her name was Sonia. I really don't remember, but she was Turkish in ancestry, and she'd spent several years in the United States. But she commented to me one time as, as we were discussing spiritual things. She said, I don't understand how you Christians can worship that. And she points to one of her crucifixes that she sells. And uh, I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, there's a dead man hanging there. How can you worship that? She, we had somehow, we being Christianity collectively, especially Roman Catholicism, had given her the idea that Jesus was still dead hanging on that cross there. And that's not good news. We don't worship a dead Jesus that just hangs there inspiring feelings of pity eternally we serve a living savior hebrews 725 says jesus is able to save to the uttermost no matter how far you go no matter how long wherever he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them he's a living intercessor second implication that paul draws out if Christ is not raised, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, a euphemism for death, have also perished. Deceased Christians are doomed if Christ is not raised. So we talk about heaven being our home. We talk about getting to heaven as though that's it. Disembodied existence in heaven is not the goal. Heaven is the intermediate state between now and and when Christ returns and raises the dead and creates a new heaven and earth. Being dead is still bad, biblically. Being dead is still bad. Yes, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that to be absent from the body is to be, what? Present with the Lord. But he says that post-cross and post-resurrection, first of all. So the resurrection was necessary to even bring that about. But second, in verse 4 of that same chapter, he also says he desires not to be unclothed, not to be stripped of his body. Being Casper the ghost in some 17th dimension floaty place is not the goal of the Christian life. He wants to be further clothed with a glorious body. If Christ isn't raised, then those who have died in Christ perish utterly. And third, we of all people, he says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is hard for us to grasp as 
Americans who have life fairly easy. I'm under no illusion that everyone has life easy, but we're all blessed. But the payoff of the Christian life is later. Christianity is not your best life now. It is not every day of Friday. It's your best life later. And we doubt Christ when hardship comes, when marital strife comes, when strife with our children comes, when financial strain comes. All of these things cause us to doubt God. And it's not that we're wrong to feel bad about them. It's that somehow... At some point, we were sold a different bill of goods. Somehow we fell under the impression that Christianity was about the improvement of our lives in the here and now. And it's generally true that if you live according to biblical principles, things can go better for you. But we live in a fallen world, and being a Christian does not guarantee you a happy marriage or a well-paying job or a house that sells above market value or behavior, uh, well-behaved children or or any of those things. Everyone suffers, by the way, Christians and non-Christians. We don't have an edge on the market in terms of our suffering, but within the Christian life, suffering is a feature, not a bug. We are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8:17 See the promise of the resurrection is that we live with Christ in his blessed life forever but that requires that we first die. I opened Twitter this morning. First mistake. But I opened twist, Twitter this morning and on, on Easter Sunday I saw this headline under world news over 200 dead after several explosions at Sri Lankan churches and hotels. At least 207 people have been killed and hundreds injured after explosions at three churches and three hotels in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. And it goes on. You know, every month, 322 believers are martyred worldwide. 214 churches and church properties are destroyed. And 772 violent acts, beatings, Imprisonments are committed against Christians globally. We suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. To embrace the gospel is, in this sense, the supreme act of delayed gratification. The logic of the gospel is that we look back on the cross. We live here in the middle in the tension as we look forward to the full realization of Christ's cosmic conquest, the consummation of his kingdom. That's the logic of the gospel. We start here. We live in the tension, the middle here, waiting for our full deliverance. Christ isn't raised. There's nothing to look forward to. But third and finally, Paul says the gospel compels us to reason from the resurrection. The gospel compels us to reason from the resurrection out to all of life. And so we're supposed to reason from the resurrection, but not just reason out from the resurrection. We should reason out and up and down and left ways and right ways and sideways and upside down. We should reason in every direction out from the resurrection because it changes everything. So first, reasoning downward from the resurrection. And there's four points of application here to close. First, to reason downward. 
from the resurrection. We must live in light of our own resurrection. Christ is the head of a new humanity. There's only two categories of human beings. Those who are dead in sin and alive in Christ. Those who are in Adam as the head of their team and those who are in Christ as the head of their team. And as in Adam all men die, in Christ all are raised. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says, verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then that is coming those who belong to Christ. All right, so Adam fouled and penalty the whole team, right? Everybody, all of the human race had to go back 10 yards. Right, that's how it started. But Christ is the head, and reasoning downward, we must live in the light that we will be raised as well. He's the first fruits, not the last fruits. He's the first fruits. The first fruits precedes the harvest. God is saying there is a final day of judgment where all the dead will be raised. There will be a new world, a new creation. The proof of it is, is that it's happening already. It's breaking into the present. 2,000 years ago, this resurrection of everybody, living and dead, started. The resurrection wasn't a fluke in history. It was a foretaste. It's the kind of thing God does. It's the kind of thing that God does. And this applies to us personally. Jesus said in John 11, 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die So your aching body and aching life are not all there is to it. This is good news. We're looking forward to something. We should reason downward and realize we'll be raised. We should reason upward and realize that Christ rose to rule. We should reason upward and live in light of Christ's reign. See, Christ didn't come back from the dead so that he could be a a haunt drifting between heaven and earth, you know, midway somewhere, just inspiring warm, fuzzy feelings among the human race. He rose to rule. He was resurrected to reign. And we get squeamish about this because people have disagreements about when and why and how Jesus comes back. But Paul says clearly here in verse 24 through 26, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Why hasn't Christ returned yet? Why is he still sitting in heaven reigning? Because he's still putting his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, not the first, the last, which means every other enemy is defeated first. So Jesus is not running for office. He's not asking us to invite him into his heart. He's already enthroned. He's announcing his rule of the universe in the gospel message, making knees bow, upsetting demonic power structures, and unflinchingly taking a people for himself from every tribe and nation and tongue, soul by soul. Daniel predicted in Daniel chapter 17 what would happen after he rose. He rose to rule, right? Because after he rose... 
About 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. This is what happened at the ascension. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that kingdom exists now in foretaste in the church. Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. The father says to Jesus, the son, he says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus, when he arrived in heaven, he didn't politely decline the offer. He took God the father up on his offer. Psalm 110, verse 1. The most frequently quoted verse from the Old Testament found in the pages of the New, arguably the Holy Spirit's favorite Bible verse, says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we know that this pertains to Christ's present enthronement because Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, in the giving of the Great Commission, in the giving of the marching orders, when he told all of his people to go make disciples, he said in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And Revelation reminds us, Revelation chapter 1, just in the introduction, not even talking about the prophetic parts of the book, just in the introduction, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. His death bought the world. His blood purchased every nation, every culture, every inch of creation. His reign starts in your heart in conversion, but it also affects culture as believers live out the effects of the faith. And it filters out to the whole cosmos altogether, all at once. Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So all of his enemies will be defeated. Abortion will be defeated. Gay mirage will be defeated. Islam will be defeated. Every idolatry, every false form of faith, adultery, child abuse, will all be defeated. Now, How you sort that out in your system about Christ's return doesn't matter. Headline, Jesus wins. Don't despair. He's making all things new. We are new already. We're part of this new creation. Second Corinthians two, Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. So this present dying world, with all of its idolatry, with all of its infatuation with sex and money and power and wealth, is pregnant with a new creation. The church that's living in the middle of this hostile world right now. This old creation is pregnant with the new. And the proof of this is the fact that we have a new Sabbath day. Because in the old creation, God rested on the seventh day. When the new creation began with the resurrection of Christ, the new Adam, there was a new day of rest instituted. He rose on the first day of the week, the Lord's day. And now we gather and worship him on this first day of the week. He's making all things new, so don't despair. Third, reasoning outward. All right, so we've reasoned down, we've reasoned up, let's reason out. We must labor and live with boldness. And I just want to make the point real quick that you know, we had a wonderful time yesterday at our community Easter egg hunt. 
hopefully you got to have some conversations with some of the newcomers that came, those of you who helped out. Thank you so much for volunteering. I met a couple people. It's awesome to be able to bring people into our, into our building and, and allow them a chance to hear the gospel and get to know us. And we want to be that kind of a friendly, inviting church. We don't want it to stop there. The resurrection turns the gospel from a suggestion into a command to surrender to the lordship of Christ. A loving command. As we know, it's the best thing for them. It's the only thing that will save them. But a command nonetheless. To preach the gospel is not to, to walk around and, and offer little coupons and slip them into the, the pockets of innocent passers-by and to give people a risk-free, trial-sized Jesus sample. That's not what it is. We're not saying give Jesus a try. Listen to how Paul talked about the gospel in Acts chapter 17. Paul didn't say give Jesus a try. He said the times of ignorance God once overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do we speak with this kind of boldness? I don't frequently. We should not only speak with this kind of boldness, we should live with this kind of boldness. You see this in verse 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than any of them. Though not I, but the, the, the grace of God that is in me. And faith in a death-defeating Lord means death-defying living. Faith in a death-defeating Lord means death-defying living. And Paul works this out even more. He says in verses 30 and 31, he says, we're in danger every hour. He says, I die daily. Now, if the here and now is all there is, then the implication is what Paul says in verses 54 excuse me, verse 32, that we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And we certainly shouldn't risk our necks proclaiming this offensive gospel. But Paul doesn't leave it hanging there. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he finishes the chapter, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All of your labor is in the Lord if you're in Christ. And all of the work that you do in Christ is not in vain. This applies not only to ministers. This applies to moms. This applies to dads. You might feel like your work is in vain as you're trying to teach your children and read scripture to them. Even as you're wrangling them right now and wondering if they're listening. Your work is not in vain. Even if your calling is just, you're unassuming, you don't need the front stage, you don't need to be the person at the front, but you're the person that's just here during the week, and you're serving, and you're scrubbing toilets, and you're, you were here yesterday setting up and hiding the Easter eggs, and you didn't have a conversation with anyone. Your work in the Lord is not in vain. It might feel like it, but because Christ rose, all of that will rise too. It'll all be brought out in the end. It'll be rewarded. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Don't give up on church. Church in general. This church. Be steadfast and immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Finally, the fourth implication. We're the reason inward. Reasoning inward from the resurrection. We must be in Christ. Remember how we began. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand. So do you stand in this gospel? Did Christ die for you? Have you embraced that? Don't ignore Jesus' claims on you. He has universal claims that we unpacked. He also has a claim on your individual soul. You can't keep him dead in your mind. He's proven himself pretty handy in those situations. You can't lock out the doors of your life to him. He'll walk through the walls. He is the conqueror. We are the conquered. He just offers us terms of peace. It's peace on the condition of absolute surrender. He's a conquering king, and those are his terms. He does demand a response from all of us. Psalm 2, and I'll end with these two verses, verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son. I swear allegiance to him, pay him homage. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Are we in Christ? We have to repent, turn from sin, give it up, and believe in the gospel. Embrace this good news. It's a free offer that will save anyone who comes to him. That's the logic of the gospel. That's resurrection reasoning from cross all the way to the cosmos and to you and your own soul. Christ died, was buried and rose. Let me pray. Oh, Father, Lord, we we want to hallow this day. We want to celebrate your resurrection today, but we acknowledge that, that even though today is resurrection day on our calendars, that every Sunday that we gather here, we gather here because Jesus is alive. And yet so often we forget the implications of this. God, our, our lives, we confess, make too much sense to an unbelieving world. Unbelievers are able to make sense of our life outside of the gospel. And Lord, if we found out that Christianity was not true, we confess that there would be few things in our life that we would really have to change that dramatically. We've not ordered our lives around the resurrection as much as we should have. But Lord, we don't want our lives to make sense to the watching world. We want the world to look at our lives and feel that it's foolishness unless Christ has been raised in which case it all makes sense. Lord, help us to live out the truth of your resurrection. Thank you for dying for sinners, for rising and for reigning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For our last song here. Nothing 
God, you rule, you reign, and you will rule, and you will reign forever. Lord God, we can have confidence that in the end, you win, Lord God. You have won, you have prevailed, Lord God, and you always will. We put our faith, our trust, and our hope in you, Lord God. Lord God, we praise you for all the work that you've done for sending Jesus Christ to come live a perfect and sinless life, Lord God, to die on our behalf. Lord God, you didn't have to send Christ to die on our behalf, but you did. And he died on our behalf because you love us. God, and he took our sins and our shame and he and he put it on Jesus Christ and he died. Lord God, and he was not he didn't just die, he didn't just stay in the ground, Lord God, but he he rose, Lord God, and he now rules and he reigns and we can put our faith and our trust and our assurance in the completed work of Jesus Christ, Lord God. My prayer is that if anyone is here that hasn't put their faith in Christ or their faith and trust in you, Lord God, that they would do so today. Lord God, we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, not just on holidays, Lord God, not just on Sundays, not just when we feel like it, but every day of the week, Lord God, in good times and in bad. Lord God, as we leave today, we pray that you would be at the forefront of our lives, that we would live not just inwardly for you, but we would live outwardly for you, Lord God. Let our lives reflect the truth of a changed and a repentant and a contrite heart, Lord God. Pray these things in your name. Amen. You're dismissed.